So we're uh, now at the second episode of Coherence. <laughs> Let's go down the hill. Okay. Hi there, Hi listeners. listeners. Welcome, Welcome to, to Coherence. Coherence. <laughs> My name is Amanda DiBattista. And I'm Andrew Mark. Next stop, York University Commons. Our thanks to Niche for funding this pilot series and to Nature's Past for hosting us. Each episode will showcase thoughts from the York University Faculty of Environmental Studies describing the intersection of culture and environment. Welcome to the second installment of Coherence's look at mourning and melancholy, making loss the center, mourning, melancholy, and environmental activism. In this episode, we'll continue exploring why melancholy and mourning are important concepts for environmental thought by trying to rethink the nature of environmentalism. We'll look at examples of the particularization and politicization of mourning. In the first episode, we talked to Kate, Kate Sandilands, Peter, Hi, I'm Peter Timmerman, and Susan, Susan Moore, about the history of melancholy and mourning. For the next seven minutes, we're going to recap what we covered. Much of our discussion focused on Freud. For Freud, melancholy was actually a psychic response to certain loss events. Where somehow the mourning didn't stop, where somehow the melancholic continues to mourn, is unable to stop mourning. Uh, as if a piece of the, a piece of the beloved, a, police, a piece of the lost object is, is like lodged, lodged in your chest, or for Freud, lodged in your psychic structure. Um, and the melancholic refuses to let that go. And so we have, we kind of carry around with us a melancholic self, because that's the selves that we have. So under all melancholia, there's an anger that you need to get at, an aggression. All right, so this was sort of Freud's idea. From there, we explored how Freud's ideas are relevant for environmental thought and activism. One question that's raised by all of this is, yeah. what has this got to do with the environment? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And one of the things that has happened over the past while is people have been interested in mourning and melancholia because of the environmental situation that we face. If we think of our culture, then in terms of a melancholic, melancholic culture, um, we could think about, um, you know, a culture that is not willing to uh, work through a loss. In the commodity relationship, we move from one nature to the next nature to the next nature, and we never really acknowledge the importance, you know, the, the, the particularity of that species, that animal, that place in constituting us. We chose to end the first episode on an optimistic note and received a little well-founded criticism for it. In these two podcast episodes, we're talking about huge losses, about death and destruction so large and so profound that most days it's impossible even to imagine. We're talking about the loss of entire species of animals, the loss of whole landscapes, and profound losses in particular communities of people because of human neglect, greed, and expansion through climate change and through environmental disasters. As we've worked on these episodes, the question we had to ask ourselves was, why must the future be framed optimistically? Why are we so compelled always to look for the positive and to insist on solutions? I mean, it's, it's really difficult because, you know, sort of people coming into FES, we're not therapists. No. Um, we're not psycho, well, with, with the exception of a couple of my colleagues, we're not psychoanalysts. Um, so, on the one hand, it's, it's kind of our responsibility to lead students to a very real understanding of this particular thing has been lost and isn't coming back, and you should be really sad about it. And that sadness should, you know, sort of in my argument at least, that you should, you should hold on to that sadness and you should allow it to, 
you know, develop into a certain, you know, to, to offer a certain kind of ethical, political response, uh, you know, sort of environmental, environmental consciousness. On the other hand, um, um, we don't have the uh, we, we, we don't have the tools to help students work through that loss. Um, you know, I can talk I can talk about it, um, and perhaps we could develop more elaborate rituals about it. But we're not trained. Yeah. I found this. I actually found the same thing in in um, in uh, when I used to teach women's studies. Um, the you know sort of the enormity of the violence that the students were exposed to was just devastating, and you know people would end up crying in my office on a regular basis because they were so incredibly upset at what at, at this horrible thing that I had just revealed. Um, so you know as educators, it's our responsibility to show the darkness, but we do not have the resources to be able to help students work through it. So what we do is we offer we insist on solutions. We offer solutions rather than allow students to live to, to work with the loss to to maintain the attachment. We say, okay, move on, go do go do something positive, go change the world. Well, yeah. The other question we had to ask ourselves was exactly what loss, what melancholy we were talking about here. Peter nailed down exactly the loss we were trying to get at. We, are, we know that we are going to have losses. We've already had losses. We're losing species every day. And that um, this is something that human beings bear responsibility for. And yet, simultaneously, many activists, climate change activists and environmentalists, um, are really um, in despair, I would call it despair, about what to do and about um, the situation where we will be able to do things, we will be able to recycle, we will be able to engage in very important activities both locally, regionally and globally, and yet the overall momentum of what's going on is essentially going to doom large numbers of species and whole parts of the planet. In our last episode, Kate asked a question we couldn't get out of our heads. It provided us with our framing question moving forward with this episode. What would it mean to mourn the loss of the fossil fuels? Yeah. It's, it's inconceivable you know, to, to mourn the gas that we've burned. We, we, it's just absolutely impossible. If we're going to continue to use it, um, it has to be replaceable. There, we cannot acknowledge that the thing simply doesn't exist anymore. What could this type of mourning look like? How could we begin to think about environmental loss in a way that allows us to comprehend how those losses might be, as Kate had said, so constituent of our rare being? Andrew had an idea of who to ask. My name is Ralph Carl Wuschke. I'm um, a minister of the United Church of Canada. I serve a small downtown uh, Toronto congregation called Bathurst United Church, and I'm also a chaplain at the University of Toronto. Ecology and particularly eco-theology and uh, eco-spirituality are big interests of mine, so I'm very happy to be uh, taking part in this conversation. You're at U of T doing your doctorate, right? And I'm also working on a doctoral program, yes. Uh, I'm working on a doctor of ministry, um, which is a practical doctorate, so it's 
qualitative research in the context of your ministry base. So I'll actually be doing some research eventually uh, on how the eco-spiritual rituals that we've used and developed in my congregation over time uh, have affected people. I asked Ralph about the role of mourning for environmental activism, and he started by telling us about what ritual theorist Tom F. Driver has to say about the importance of ritual for our understanding of the world. We are ritualizing beings and uh, ritualizing species. It's not just about static ritual. It is about the capacity to, to ritualize, which is our way of figuring out who we are and our way of... Um, it's really a primal, it's an essential language for us in, in shaping our understanding, but also our realities. At, at a very basic level, um, when we ritualize, we are in the process of creating the world that we want, or creating the world as we imagine hope it would be. I mean, that's, that's ethical ritual, at least. And Ralph told us, this way of making sense of the world is rooted in the body. Like ritual helps us uh, to, at, at times of, of loss, um, you know, sing of that loss, pray of that loss, uh, embody that loss. Um, um, you know, ritual involves a lot of different, can ideally involves a lot of different bodily actions too, you know, from kneeling to standing to mm -hmm. sitting to... It's like kinetic. So, a kinetic, yeah, that's right, a kinetic co component. Um, so there's, you know, as Ecclesiastes says, you know, Ecclesiastes says, you know, there's a time for mourning and a, and a time for laughing, a time for planting and a time for harvesting, a time for, uh, you know, being born and a time for dying. And so, I mean, it's kind of a little bit cynical, uh, in, actually, if you read it closely, but nevertheless, um, it, um, I think, you know, that either individually or collectively, we have a choice. We can sit, you know, sit in the, the loss and stay stuck there or we can um, uh, see it not so much as a linear progression, but at least as a cycle. In our last episode, Peter had identified what he thought might be the source of some of the melancholy that pervades environmental activism. The idea that you could drop a bomb somewhere and you could essentially rip a hole in the fabric of time and space in a, in a particular place. You could obliterate that, that place of time and space. And, and through the Cold War, this possibility that we could obliterate everything generated various forms of mourning and melancholia in in the political domain, but also in the activist domain. Would we ever get out of this situation? And so on. So I asked Ralph to tell us how ritual might be important to environmental activists. For a lot of environmental activists, there's a certain sort of uh, frenetic, desperate uh, sort of activism in the sense like we've got to act like you know, Earth is going to disappear, like, you know, the planet as we know it is going to be gone, we've got to do something. And so there's this, you know, intense um, desperation, really, which, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to put anybody down for, you know, investing their life in uh, environmental uh, activism that way. I mean, you know, God bless Greenpeace, um, uh, who, and, you know, and, and interestingly, you know, they have a really good understanding of ritual, I must say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's another whole discussion. But... Um, uh, one of the things that I've heard when I've talked with people who are like professional environmentalists whose job is to, you know, uh, improve, you know, sustainability or recycling is there's this sense of despondency, like we're just never going to get there, it's too little, too late. So that, to me, is where, you know, a ritual of lament and sitting with the loss so that you, you actually, you know, do the grieving that you need to do 
uh, and then look for, um, well, maybe this is a good analogy, actually. And an, 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 an image that I love is the image of uh, weeds or twitch grass, quack grass, growing up through a concrete par uh, parking lot or a pavement. You know, like, you know, you pave over a schoolyard uh, with asphalt, uh, you know, which has often happened. And the next thing you know, there are dandelions and South thistles and twitch grass growing up through right. through through the through the cracks in the pavement. You can almost depend on it. You can almost depend on it, and it's yeah. such a sign of you know the resilience. I mean, uh, you know, it's a disgusting scene, but it's but the, the fact that the plants you know force their way through that the roots are so powerful and force their way up through uh, the asphalt is is a really an amazing sort of sign of resilience and the strength of strength of strength of earth. Environmental activists aren't great at doing this work. If environmentalism in general shifts focus from one endangered species to the next, one nature to the next, without ever engaging in meaningful mourning, where could we look to find examples of how to do this kind of work? Who mourns in more respectful, political, and ethical ways? Kate pointed us towards queer politics as an example. We, we, we learn really important things about the politicization of melancholic attachments, the importance of melancholic attachments. Um, through queer politics, um, specifically through uh, aesthetic, uh, artistic, literary uh, responses to AIDS. And what, what, a, what, what the AIDS, uh, uh, particularly what, what the, the sort of rise of uh, AIDS activism and, and AIDS-inspired uh, AIDS literature uh, and, el and elegy has done uh, is it has first uh, shown the importance of uh, mourning particular deaths. So the AIDS quilt is full of names of individual people who have been lost. It's kind of like, you know, one, one could argue that, that, that war memorials or, 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 or the Holocaust memorial, the, 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 reading out, the, pro the practice of reading out of individual names is actually extraordinarily important for the mourning process because it acknowledges that this life this life is gone. This life has been snuffed out. Um, but so there's, there's a particularization of loss, a recognition that the object that is lost is actually lost. Um, and there is also a politicization of that loss. Okay, so we haven't just, you know, what do we do with this? What do we do with the loss? Um, how do we make the fact of having lost part of a political response. One of the little rituals that I that I've kept over the years as friends of mine, when friends of when I hear that a friend of mine, and this doesn't happen very often now, but in the 90s and 80s it happened a lot that I'd get news that another person with HIV with AIDS had died, a friend of mine had died. So I would immediately sit down at my piano and play my favorite hymn for all the saints, sing all eight stanzas, play it badly, but and then write his name on the uh, on that page in the hymnal. So this is my personal little ritual that I would you know immediately do when somebody died of AIDS. And you know that's you know sitting with the grief. Like this is a moment to cry and a moment to sing. There's nothing else to do here now, uh, but it's a way of you know processing it and, and moving moving through it. And um, certainly, um, you know I think the, by analogy, there's maybe something like this to be done. Um, 
whether it's an earth quilt or uh, songs of lament for the species that are gone. Could we tease this connection between the importance of mourning for queer politics and the possibilities for environmental mourning out further? In part one, Kate talked a bit about her paper, Melancholy Nature's Queer Ecologies. In this paper, Kate explores the politicization of mourning and queer politics. In particular, Kate looks at Jan Zeta Grover's North Enough, AIDS and Other Clear Cuts, and Derek Jarman's Modern Nature as direct responses to AIDS. Kate argues that both Grover and Jarman's memoirs are melancholic and, in so being, quote, offer a perspective with which to appreciate and mourn the particular natures around them in a way that challenges dominant commodity substitutability and offers a sense of what it might mean to inhabit the natural world having been transformed by the experience of its loss. The psychic structure of mourning is very much uh, part of queer politics um, and that it gives rise to a particular, not, not a particular melancholic condition, but a particular, rel- a particular way of politicizing melancholia uh, in certain kinds of directions. Jarman's work is relevant to this discussion because at the center of his response to the death that surrounded him was a garden. His response to, uh, uh, to AIDS is to grow this unbelievable garden in Dungeness, in the shadow of a nuclear power plant, in the most hostile possible climate. Um, and he still, you know, he grows these, um, he, he, he puts a, an enormous amount of, of effort into, into seeing what is able to grow in this place. Um, so he's got this sort of wonderful, and at, at the same time in, in his journal, Modern Nature, um, he's, he's, he's in the process of growing this garden, and he's also coming to the recognition of the death of, uh, of, of the deaths of his friends and lovers, and eventually his own. Um, um, from AIDS. So you've got this this amazing sense of how do we create a garden that is not a garden of Eden that does not cast death out? How do we how do I create a garden in which the reality of death and the, and the particularity of loss is actually built into the garden itself? Not the metaphor of the garden and the garden. So Andrew asked Ralph what environmental mourning that included ritual might look like, and if he thought it would be a political act. It's easier, I think, to imagine when we think about breathing. One of the rituals we do in our, our congregation a lot, which could certainly be connected with um, uh, uh, air pollution and CO2 emissions and greenhouse gases, is we have a breathing prayer, which we use often. Um, so when we breathe in, we imagine that we are breathing, you know, the air that had, that other people have breathed before. And, you know, this it's just oxygen that keeps recirculating, right? And so, so by breathing... And being mindful about our breath and our breathing in a ritual, we are intentionally connecting ourselves to um, everything, every other plant and animal and life that has ever breathed or suffered or died. Um, And so that breathing prayer has the capacity both to breathe in grief, loss, um, lament, uh, and breathe out you know, um, anger. And it also has the capacity to breathe in joy and breathe out empowerment and breathe out action for change. So, you know, you, you, you go through that ritual in a mindful way, takes, you know, good part of our service time, you know, it'll take five or 10 minutes to do it in a nice way, but it has a transformative quality. You know, you 
have a different affect when it's over. You feel, you feel different, yeah. right? So it's pretty practical, yeah. really. Peter also told us about a ritual he had encountered that dealt with environmental loss. Somewhere in the late 1970s, uh, a Buddhist general systems theorist, her name was Joanna Macy, um, decided to create a series of ritual workshops. And these ritual workshops were called despair and empowerment workshops. And what she was trying to do was to get people to actually acknowledge and live through, uh, in imagination, um, atomic loss from either a nuclear war of some kind. So last fall, uh, after the collapse of the Copenhagen um, negotiations for the climate change agreement and the Kyoto Protocol, um, a group of people met uh, in Toronto to actually go through a kind of despair and empowerment workshop um, to deal with how we felt about environmental loss and the prospects for environmental loss through the rest of the 21st century. And myself and some other colleagues organized this in conjunction with the United Church. And we brought together people for activists and people who were belong to the religious communities. And we spent um, a day kind of just thinking about this and, and also going through some ritual activities to simultaneously explore our sense of despair and loss and worry about where we were going, but also what then? How do we move forward from there? And I think it was very, very uh, powerful. And almost all of these things are very powerful. And part of the um, discussion was about mourning and melancholia. So as Ralph and Peter described the ability of ritual to help to repair loss, to help us heal, we were reminded of something that Susan has said in our first episode about the importance of art and literature for dealing with loss. You know, the idea of art and literature and other forms of creative expression is that that is a sort of um, creative sublimation of these impulses rather than just, you know, devouring and destroying. Um, instead, um, putting things into words and, and, and into art are a better way of dealing with, you know, <laughs> dealing with it, the problem. But um, I think that even now the idea that we need to think about in terms of how we treat the environment is to think of it um, that we want to be in what Klein would call working through the depressive position, which is where we're no longer splitting into good and bad, but instead are trying to repair, um, you know, our good objects and um, trying to um, creatively. And, and so for her, this is, you know, also the source um, that, that guilt from having your own sort of sadism against, um, you know, your own object, or if we want to think about here, um, sadism against the land, this can um, lead to guilt, which then leads to repair. And so there's a very important role for language and art in relation to that loss. If creative sublimation is important, we wondered about the role of artists and writers for environmental mourning. And what better place to start exploring that question than in the bloody pages of books that dealt with death and extinction. It turned out that we didn't have to look very far for a body of literature to work with. 
actually Canadian literature has a long tradition of uh, writing about extinction. Another person that you should speak to is Ella. I'm Ella Soper and um, I hold a postdoc in the Faculty of Environmental Studies in Environmental Literature, Sustainability and Culture. Um, I specialize in Canadian extinction literature. Um, my current research concerns Canadian extinction literature, so um, representations of endangered, extinct, spectral um, animals in Canadian literature, and also the threat of human extinction in Canadian literature. I also teach at the University of Toronto, Mississauga, where I teach courses in Canadian literature, the graphic novel, literature in the environment, um, and a host of other forms of literatures. Ella was kind enough to sit down with me to talk about her work on extinction literature and how that literature is related to environmental mourning. The question of the role of elegy or the role of mourning in contemporary literature is really interesting to me and stems from um, an abiding interest I have in Victorian culture, which may be surprising given, given my contemporary focus. But I think there were a lot of interesting things happening in the Victorian moment um, that that spoke to that culture of um, sensibility, that spoke to the idea that uh, works of literature could create public cultures, could, um, could crystallize certain um, issues uh, pertaining to the welfare of others, be they uh, human or non-human animal others, and could really get people talking and thinking and agitating for change in a wider political um, arena. Um, I'm also really fascinated with the cult of, of sensibility or the cult of sentimentality that, that arose around the same time where people would, um, you know, to shed tears over the plight of another through encountering their difficulties in a work of literature was seen to be indicative of your moral refinement in some way. And throughout the better part of the 20th century, from what I understand, this, this, uh, this tradition was driven underground. A lot of things happened. Uh, World wars happened. Um, behaviorism came along. So as as you know, the sentimental animal story, for example, sort of went the way of the dodo, and people didn't think that literature uh, could be ethical any longer. I mean, part of what modernism did was to celebrate the aesthetic over the ethics. What I want to know is, can we move beyond just a, a cult of of sentimentality? Um, such as we witnessed in the Victorian moment, and, and start exploring you know, some of the political ramifications as that moment did, um, but also move beyond that to, a more, to explore a more ethical engagement with works of literature, a more ethical engagement with the plight of others that, doesn't, uh, that isn't seen to other them or to reassert the comfortable binary between self and other, but can really problematize that to, to um, interesting and perhaps alarming effect as posthumanist studies tend to do. Um, you know, really blurring the boundaries between, for example, what is human and what is non-human, what is self, what is other. Ella gave me an example of literature that demonstrates this type of ethical engagement with species extinction, one in which mourning is essential. So in my own work I've looked at, um, I've looked at different works that on animal extinction that I think pose interesting questions in terms of our ability to, to mourn um, the extinction of species. So one of the, one of the uh, books that I've been really interested in is Lydia Millett's How the Dead Dream. Um, she's an American author, and uh, the story is told from the perspective of a resort property developer. He's a bit sociopathic as a character. Um, he's really largely, as the term sociopathic would suggest, 
uh, dis disassociated from the plights of others altogether until he suffers a series of losses and uh, hits, hits a coyote while he's driving along the highway one night and he, he hasn't quite killed the coyote, he pulls her off the side of the road and he, he feels compelled to witness her death and to um, take her to a place where she can die more comfortably. He doesn't even appear to be aware of why he feels this is required of him. But it prompts a series of reevaluations in his own life, and it sees him go through um, a really interesting development. So he starts breaking into zoos at night um, and communing with so-called final animals, the last animals of their kind, and um, you know, sort of invoking posthumanist theory here. They can't even really be considered of the same species as their kin in the wild because they're zoo animals, and the zoo animal is, by definition, a post-natural animal. Um, so he's communing with these animals, he's trying to share time with them and to share sleep with them by way of what? Keeping them company? Um, I think it's a fantastic novel in its emphasis on forms of resistant mourning. Um, and Clifton Spargo has talked about um, resistant mourning and, and about forms of mourning that, don't, that, that resist closure, that, that worry the wound, that keep the wound open to some extent. In The Ethics of Mourning, Grief and Responsibility in Elegiac Literature, Spargo argues for a type of mourning that disrupts social conventions. In resistant mourning, grief is not consolable and we are required to remain in a relationship with the other. Literature, Spargo argues, is in a unique position to address and engage with this type of mourning, which resists closure and requires a very complicated and sustained relationship with the other. And I think it's a really interesting question, and I think what Millet might be doing is suggesting that um, that this is somehow the role of the the role of the writer in, in contemporary times. That in our time, that this is something that is required. Um, somebody needs to be witnessing these losses, reckoning these losses, uh, and 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 reckoning reckoning that these losses are, are an ongoing crisis. That that closure would be premature because the hemorrhage isn't near isn't near being being stopped or clotted or whatever the term would be. So why is literature in a particularly good position to engage in resistant mourning? Why does literature allow us to worry the wound? Susan has already told us that putting loss into words was important for mourning, that creative sublimation helps us to replace a loss and move on. Both Susan and Ella also told us why story is so important for environmental education. Um, and why literature and film can be so powerful is that they too can also re reactivate those feelings for um, you know, uh, students and uh, ourselves. And um, that the role then in, of the educator then is not to have literature, use literature or film in such a way as to re-traumatize students, but to use it as a moment to return to a historical past, um, which is also our unconscious past, and um, creatively work through it. Okay, so I think that's um, what should be going on in education. I, I'm also perennially concerned with uh, questions of uh, the, the genres of comedy and tragedy and how they pertain to um, the ways in which we read and we teach um, literature and, and what, we, what we come to expect from works of literature, what we 
what we want to get out of the reading experience. And so another text that I, I love to teach is um, Fred Bodsworth's Last of the Curlews. And year after year, you know, I will, I will introduce this book to students and they will say, well, I never knew such a thing as an Eskimo curlew ever existed, and now I care, and it's gone. And, the, you know, this book has the capacity to change people's hearts and minds about the Eskimo curlew, you know, something, a species that very few people even knew existed before, you know, often before they've encountered it in this book. But story works that way, right? Story can take the enormity of an ongoing crisis like species extinction and bring it back to the plight of the one, the one, you know, the one individual, the sole individual, to make it manageable. And you get that whole genre of literature that's, you know, the last great auk, the last of the curlews, the last of its kind, sort of this, this perennial interest with, um, with um, final animals. And what's interesting is that I mean, as, as the title alone would suggest, there's that teleology, right? If it's the last of its kind, no matter how, you know, no matter how um, effectively the author characterizes, um, you know, the protagonist, you know how it's going to end. I mean, Ernest Thompson Seton famously said that the, uh, the life of a wild animal always has a tragic ending. And then he went on to write numerous stories in which the animals met these very tragic ends. But I think it's really instructive to be reminded that the tragedy that we're talking here falls solely within the economy of the human, because the animal itself and the curlew in that story can't possibly know that it's the last of its kind. In fact, everything in its makeup would suggest that you know its sole purpose is to wait for its mate. Um, so it's a it's a form of um, dramatic irony, right? That we as readers know something the curlew can't possibly know about his own fate. Um, but to recognize that that, that that tragedy, it's no less a tragedy for the species, but the tragedy itself is a concept we bring to bear in our understanding of what's happening in the world. And tragedy is like mourning on some level. I mean, some would even argue it's deeply unethical to be writing, um, to be always writing tragedy, to be delighting in apocalyptic narratives, to be delighting in extinction narratives as though this were the only wound we could worry you have to wonder, what does it say about our moment that we've ceased to tell ourselves stories about our own becoming and we're telling ourselves stories about the end of days instead? Um, and often even transmuting that idea of apocalypse as one world giving way to another world, that revelation in which there's, there's change, but there's continuity, there's survival beyond it. Often when we, um, when we talk about apocalypse in contemporary parlance, it's it's the end of ends, you know. There, there is no world beyond it. And what does that tell us about ourselves, about if we were to take sort of a measure of our uh, social health through the literature that we're reading and the movies that we're creating and the, the, you know, the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, what does that say about us, about our present moment? How ethical is that? If creative sublimation is so important for mourning of all kinds, what about those of us who aren't writers or artists? Can simply reading books that engage in resistant mourning be enough? If we're asking authors to do this work for us, and I don't think it ends at literature, I think you could extend the same idea or this same theory to works of art, um, works of music, uh, to, to, to different practices. But if we're content to let others mourn for us, if we're mourning by proxy, is that ethical? Or is that reverting to that Victorian cult of, of sentimentality whereby you know, you're only showing your own moral refinement 
if you're choosing to engage with this? Do you feel more ethical for having read a book or gone to see an exhibit that focuses on the plights of others? Um, is it any more than, than a form of charity? Um, so how might it be ethical under those circumstances? And how might authors be at once commenting on the necessity of the act of witnessing in these times, but also on, on our, our complacency when it comes to outsourcing our grief, to letting other people mourn on behalf of us? So if we hope to engage in mourning that is not complacent, that actually gets at the loss, what kind of mourning should we be doing? So my question is, is there any way that mourning might be ethical, might be an avant-garde reaction rather than a rear-guard reaction? Can mourning be a form of militancy as well, to, to quote Douglas Crimp, who was an AIDS activist? Um, is there an attitude there we might foster between mourning and militancy? Each person we'd talked to so far had identified a risk in this type of mourning. Each of our interviewees acknowledged that mourning is not easy work, Susan touched on the risk of violence in environmental studies in particular. I think there's always a risk um, in, a, in all courses, but I think also environmental studies, that we can shock, you know, and, and, and uh, we can commit violences um, by looking at the environment, showing pictures of dead animals or things like that. And I think um, we have to... The goal shouldn't be to traumatize our yeah. students, but to um, to rather connect them to an awareness of loss and creatively work through it. But I think it, it does have to be always understood that there is a kind of aggression that's fundamental to melancholia. Yeah. It is not all about this return to this blissful place. And I think that the romantics kind of, you know, when you think about melancholic and melancholic longing, you have that kind of feeling. Um, but it is actually can be quite aggressive okay. and, and I think that aggression can get acted out against our environment unless we put it into words, okay. <laughs> right? It's that simple, <laughs> you know, it needs to be creatively dealt with, otherwise they, they can just become attacks. Um, so how do we as activists keep from becoming paralyzed, doing the wrong thing, doing nothing? Um, making everybody else depressed? How do we actually go about doing what we do? And I think the most important thing that came out of it, for me anyway, was this idea that I was talking about earlier of melancholia as an ongoing uh, notion, that, that, that one, one has to see a loss as an integral part of human life, and one has to see it as, a, as a, one of the characteristics of who we ourselves are, and not to look away from it, and to use um, loss as a way of understanding our situation in better detail. That is, rather than having a false optimism that somehow we're going to be able to collect, I don't know, seven people and change the world tomorrow, which yeah. tends to be a, a vision that some people have, and I'm not against seven people getting together tomorrow and changing the world, but um, trying to ground the kinds of things that we want to do more realistically. And most activists are quite realistic. It's just that we do kind of wander backwards and forwards sometimes between these poles of we have to do everything and we can do nothing. And it, this kind of manic depression, the activist manic depression 
totally burned out and totally enthusiastic, um, which we veer between, is something that one has to just deal with um, mm-hmm. as activists. And, and, and now we hypervalue. You, you can see it. This is, this is what Morton means by bright green environmentalism. We hypervalue the positive because we assume that it is through, um, you know, the, these these positive examples of I changed this or you know I got my entire community to switch to compact fluorescent light bulbs. Um, it is through these positive mechanisms that change proceeds rather than through the negative. Yeah. It seems as though by not engaging in the very difficult and painful work of mourning, we've lodged ourselves, our melancholic environmentalist selves, in a static way of understanding environmentalism and of dealing with the losses around us. Caden Peter had some thoughts for moving forward. What does it mean to look at nature? Um, Not papering over what has been lost, but recognizing that the fact of loss is in our current ecological condition at the center of our environmental experience. And it's clear that um, the more and more one goes into looking at these threats to ourselves, the more we have to rethink the nature of what we're doing as environmentalists and people who are environmental thought that the kinds of things that we were concerned about in the 1970s and that most environmentalism was built upon are not the kinds of things that are um, our concerns now or they are the same kind of concerns but they've been transformed because they've become deeper and and our prophecies have come true about what was going to happen if you didn't do very much about them. As we began to think through this reevaluation, it seemed more and more that a reassessment of environmentalism would also need to include a reframing of social justice. In a class I was TAing, we were fortunate enough to hear about Honor Ford Smith's work with Politicized Mourning. I'm Honor Ford Smith, and I work at the Faculty of Environmental Studies. I work in community and environmental art, and my own work is on memory and violence and performance, those three things together in urban, um, I guess you'd say inner city communities. As Andrew and I sat around Honor's dining room table, she told us about the ways that mourning makes an appearance in her work. I'm interested in using mourning as a way to get to a sense of social justice or um, as a form of protest. I'm interested in um, trying to um, reveal the kinds of losses that have been caused by the, the global restructuring. So I've, I'm, not, I'm not fully within the Freudian approach. Uh, um, Um, paradigm because I guess I'm interested in um, the whole question as a social issue and less as a sort of um, individual process of working through Um, because I think that uh, um, personal losses are often connected to social uh, losses. Um, In the case of Jamaica where I'm where where the focus of my work uh, is we're looking at a society which reached um, a level of 60 per 100,000 uh, who, are, who, are, who are being murdered every year, um, as opposed to Toronto, which has about four 
per 100,000. So that gives you uh, a sense of how bad things had gotten. And uh, of course, there is enormous personal loss uh, that goes along with, with this and personal suffering. But when you add up all the personal um, losses and suffering, you, you see that um, there is an e also an enormous social cost to this uh, uh, as a result of all this violence. So I wanted to join the personal and the social together and to create a, set, a situation in which people could make visible the kinds of personal suffering that they were undergoing. Um, in order to make uh, various so social actors more aware of what causes this, um, this violence and um, how some of the violence which is taking place there is connected to violence in other places and uh, is connected to um, older forms of violence which are being reconstituted in, in the form of neoliberalism. So it's a politicizing of mourning. There it was again, a description of the politicization of mourning that had come up in every single interview we'd done so far for this episode. We had to wonder why mourning seems to lend itself so well to being politicized. What is it that can make the act of mourning so powerful? Because mourning um, is a work, and because, in a sense, it's something that is socially acceptable, that could be a place to begin um, building awareness about um, how the the violence that is taking place is not just something that's caused by individual criminals, which is what I think um, the prevailing conventional wisdom is, but rather that the criminalization of people has come about it as a result of global restructuring. And so it, it's really, the idea is to use mourning as a form of social, um, critique and as a form of social protest um, and to go from this very emotional moment of suffering to something that's more reflective and analytical. Honor's understanding of mourning sounded an awful lot like Ralph's breathing ritual or Kate's reflection on the importance of mourning for queer politics. It also sounded like Peter's mourning ritual workshop and Ella's discussion of resistant mourning. Honor echoed Susan's concerns about re-traumatization. There have been people who have felt that, you know, this is not worth anything. In fact, stirring up loss and stirring up the pain associated with loss can sometimes result in a desire for revenge, you know. And um, this is one of the things that the communities pointed out, point out to us that, you know, you have to be careful because when people think about what happened to their children or, or their fathers or whatever, they become, they feel, you know, a desire to take revenge. And unless you have a community, uh, you know, to work through that, it becomes, um, you know, a difficult thing. So mourning is something that can go either way to, to be able to um, creatively use the emotions associated with it to create an alternative though is I think um, 
something that's very important and it's what Joseph Roach calls surrogation where into the crevices of what is lost or in you attempt to substitute something um, for what has been lost um, you you try to recreate in 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 a sense that thing that has been lost and mm -hmm. it in that recreation is the reparation in a sense of um, of the loss it can never be perfect it it can never completely regain but it is a way of renewing and um it's the, it's the impulse behind so much art is the elegiac impulse that in a sense the elegy is the most um, um, the elegy the lament all of these forms are are related to mourning um, and they come out of mourning rites and mourning reflections but they substitute something um, in the present for what has been lost in the past and they make the past present in a way that um, is that it aims to be reparative in some way but the reparation I'm saying has to be not just a personal act but in the case of um, what has happened in in Jamaica it has to be I think recognized as something that um, and you know Jamaica is one example you could talk about Colombia you could talk about uh, Rwanda you could talk about um, mm -hmm. You know what's going on in Somalia now. Um, uh, it has to be a, a way of socially recognizing that these problems are not caused just by somebody willfully deciding to become a criminal or to take up a gun or to, you know, take the law into his own hands or whatever. These have a complex sort of geology of social production. The politicization of mourning is so complex and potentially so dangerous. Honor offered some examples of protests that included mourning that are important for her work. Political and our models are coming from, um, I suppose the best known example would be uh, the, the Madres de la Plaza de Mayo in Argentina. Between 1976 and 1983, there was a dirty war in Argentina a period of state violence in which the military junta killed or disappeared 30,000 people who were thought to have political ties to the opposition. The mothers of the disappeared, um, because they were mothers, um, decided to mount a protest campaign. And what they did was they, they dressed in white, and they I think they dressed in white well, they certainly had white head ties. It's the white head tie, Panuela Blanca, that they wore on their heads. And they carried images of the disappeared around their necks. And they made a public act of mourning by walking around and walking around the street, walking around in the square. And they didn't say anything. They just would come every Thursday and walk in a circle outside of the Casa Rosada, which is the head of, which is state, um, the seat of state power, the, gov the government, the palace of the president. And they, um, and they kept this up for years and years until um, eventually the military junta fell and, um, and a process of uh, um, 
social mourning and memorialization is taking place. It's still taking place. And, uh, but the Madras became the focal point of, uh, of this idea of mourning um, the death of youth in politically repressive regimes. And really, they, because they were mothers, they kind of had a moral um, reprieve, in a sense. So the, although they did have um, recriminations, they were able to get the attention of the world focused on the, on the military hunter and international agencies and so on took an interest. And they built a kind of social movement of women who, um, who kept up the pressure on the regime over the years and demanded you know, to know what had happened to their kids. Honor also told us about some of the work that she had done here in Toronto. I began by doing um, an intervention in the centre of Toronto around the death of 50 or so youth in 2005 at the, in the gun violence. It was the proverbial year of the gun, and that was 2005. And if, I don't know if you remember that um, n- kind of nothing was said about it for a long time, and then Jane Kreba, a young white girl, was killed. And after that happened, then public attention dramatically accelerated and the media began to run a a kind of campaign about um, gun violence. And what we wanted to do in doing our intervention was in a way to turn our attention away from Jane, not because Jane's death wasn't important, but because we wanted to look also at the issues of um, that, that that produced this kind of uh, problem. What are some of the things that lead young men to take up a gun? Um, and what are some of the, the issues that lead people to, uh, from impoverished communities, so-called impoverished communities, to kill each other? And so what we did was we brought the ghosts of people who had died in violent crime into the center of the outside the Eaton Centre, and what we wrote on the sidewalk, the names of the youth who had been killed, and the um, the people who represented the ghosts carried a coffin that had the images of all the youth who had been killed, and when they set down the coffin, they wrote their names on the ground, and without speaking, handed out letters to the audience, and asked the audience to read them. And the audience read them, and there were messages from the dead about what had taken place. And while the audience was uh, was was reading these messages from those who had been killed, we unfurled images of global wars that were taking place concurrently to try to get audiences to question what the connection or disconnection was between these images of wars elsewhere. And this, you know, um, this sort of criminal violence that takes place, whether, if any, there's any connection. And, to, and the letters also try to provoke uh, those kinds of things. There's another example of, um, of a, a group that uses memorialization and mourning as a, as a protest, and it's the ghost bikes. You know the ghost bikes yeah. Yeah. here in Toronto? They do it. And then there's women in black, which are the women... Um, 
who protest the occupation of Palestine by dressing in black and um, you know they have moments when they come out together in protest so it's there's a whole iconography there and a whole history and tradition that um, reinvents and uh, reinvents the meaning of loss um, in an attempt to pursue justice what is the relationship between you know these high levels of violence and the question of justice um, who has the right to be remembered and when we remember uh, and we mourn the loss of these kids most of them are kids right um, or very young men um, what are we really doing what are we calling up how are they significant? Mm -hmm. And I think what we are trying to show is that the is that the losses that we're seeing um, are in some way uh, connected to the way in which the world is being reorganized, so as to kind of create these areas that Zygmunt Bauman calls sort of. Um, wasted lives, these whole zones in which you have groups of people who are just jettisoned by society and who um, are, you know, sort of seen as people who have to be maintained all the time on the margins. Agamben calls it zones of uh, abandonment or people who don't have rights to rights, camps in a sense, zones of lawlessness. The way that the economy is organized is organized in such a way as to exclude so you have to turn to what you can turn to and many of the countries that you know have become the center of of um, these kinds of informal wars are are um, countries which have had a long history of cold war and colonial genocide and so in a way these the, you know there are a number of other historical factors which come into play and I guess this is where Mr. Freud would say or Dr. Freud would say that um, you know until the society as a whole goes through a process of uh, mourning and memorialization these and reparation these historical atrocities can never really be resolved fully. As our interview wrapped up, I still had a question for Honor. How, I asked her, do you do this work? How do you teach this loss without succumbing to the activist manic depression that Peter and Ralph had been talking about? How can we engage in the politicization of mourning without becoming debilitated or re-traumatized? I think it's very hard. It's very hard and um, people say, ask me that or equivalent of that all the time. Um, and in fact, I've had instances where people refuse to participate in, in the work because they don't want to stir up these very unpleasant memories. Um, I think one way is to build communities of mourning. This is not my phrase, this is the phrase of a woman called Pilar um, Riano Alcala, who has done similar work in Colombia and whose work in, has inspired, in a way, um, some of what I'm doing. Um, that the, the whole idea is to create setting situations where um, people uh, have each other 
um, and where they be build a, a community which uh, enables um, reflection and mourning together. And there it was, the focus on community that has been so pervasive throughout this episode. The idea that the politicization of mourning is too big to do individually, and even if we could do it individually, it wouldn't be effective anyway. So rather than insisting on individual solutions as Morton's bright green environmentalism does, or offering false optimism as we may have done at the end of our first episode, we must look to each other to face the challenges that lay ahead. What is clear from our discussions with Honor, Ella, Ralph, Susan, Peter, and Kate is that there is strength and courage to be had in sharing our pain, our suffering, and our anger as we mourn all our losses. We can look to each other not for happy, unrealistic solutions, but rather to engage in mourning that worries the wound and demands that particular losses be considered as part of a wider social context so that we may begin to address systemic violence, colonial histories, and pervasive environmental destruction. Coherence is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment and the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University. So now that we've launched Coherence with Sean's help, we're going to be starting our own stream through iTunes. There'll be buttons on our webpage, and you can follow links there. You'll also be able to search for us on iTunes directly. Thanks to Honor Ford Smith, Ella Soper, Ralph Carl Wischke, Susan Moore, Peter Timmerman, and Kate Sanderlands for speaking with us. In our next episode, which will come through our brand new feed, we'll look at art in environmental studies. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and send us feedback on the show. Music for this episode was provided by Pants Productions and Rob Sop. This episode was produced by Andrew Mark and Amanda DiBattista, and the fantastic sound design was done by Andrew Nolan. For details about this episode, check out our show notes at niche-canada.org backslash coherence. Coherence is spelled C-O-H-E-A-R-E-N-C-E. Hello, hello, hello. All right. Are we recording now? Peter also told us about a, wit- a ritual. A ritual. <laughs> Silly wabbit. <laughs> 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 <laughs>